So one of the things that we have to understand about the federal government's COVID-19 spending response is that it is a desperate attempt of impotent and incompetent leaders to look like they are doing something. They have to look like they know what they're doing. They have to look like they're exhibiting some kind of leadership. They, they know that they have to look to the voters like they're doing something that's actually gonna help. But in all reality, what they've actually done is only helped themselves and said, fuck the rest of you American people. That's what's actually happened. And that's where they've shown a lack of leadership. And this is once again, where if libertarians will step forward with a bold voice and not compromise on our principles and on our ideals and lead with our principles and our ideals because our principles and our ideals are pragmatic and they do work and we still believe in freedom. We still believe in liberty. We still believe in justice. We still believe in free markets. We still believe in the way of freedom for individuals in their lives. Libertarians show leadership because the pandering patronizing politicians in DC are not cutting it. They're leaving an opportunity for us to exhibit real leadership. Libertarians step up. Welcome back to the on Liberty podcast, our working title for our project we got going on here. Um, how are you, Adam? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you tonight, Adam? Fine. Fine. I'm trying to think about the best way to sort of ease into our topic. Um, I guess well, we could... go ahead. So, so we know, we know we talked about when we uh, wanted to start this cast, uh, it was after the COVID-19 lockdown first started the first title that we had, you know, the, the running title, uh, we were talking about libertarians in a pandemic, you know, answering to the question, are there any such thing as libertarians in a pandemic? And so we were going to call ourselves pandemic libertarians. And I think we very much had COVID-19 and the response to it, uh, on our mind at the time. So, um, and I guess that's really kind of the, uh, um, the main issue that we want to touch on today, right? primarily um yeah the the a lot of the stuff that we that i'd read about um the about COVID 19 with relation to libertarians was that there are no libertarians in a pandemic um because i guess the thought process is that like by default when people um succumb to fear and confusion and um, just sort of a lack of direction, their default response is to look to government to lead them. Um, even when government itself is completely incompetent and unqu unqualified to make any decisions, any rational decisions um, with relation to a situation like COVID. Um, the 
it, it, in hindsight, looking back on sort of, I guess we can, I don't know if we're safe yet, but I guess we can call ourselves um, on the other side at this point of that whole situation, at least for the most part, we can, I guess with clarity, look back on the decisions that were made uh, on every level of government from local and state level to national level to international level and um, the things that not only the US government did but the Chinese government and other governments throughout the world, um, the measures they put into place, the response they had, the uh, use of force to make an attempt to control people to such a degree that they would not have the obligation of interacting with one another by doing so effectively um, destroying the economy, um, destroying businesses, driving people into isolation that most likely, I don't think we'll know yet, but um, led to an increase of other problems like mental illness and suicide and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I guess we just need to think with clarity about the response that, that we witnessed unfold and um, I guess not really pick it apart, but just rethink how we as people respond to these kinds of things and question whether or not our, you know, in times of certain uncertainty and um, fear and confusion uh, and mass hysteria, is the government the right place to look for leadership or is it somewhere else? Is it you, you the right place? You, you should be leading yourself and making your own decisions. If you own a business, uh, you should be able to make a conscious decision for yourself whether or not you're going to shut down and not be forced by the gunpoint of government to shut down. Um, if you're an employer, you should, uh, I guess, leave it to your employees to decide whether or not they're going to come into work and make money and not, you know, force them to stay home and then cut their paycheck and then, you know, cut off all the resources. And oh, by the way, government for four months worth of a pandemic, they gave you $1,200 of your taxpayer money, your tax paid money back. And uh, hopefully that sustains you for four months. Cause if not, they, they gave the large corporations billions upon billions of dollars. Um, so that should show you where your government's, your American government's loyalty lies. Um, if that's not a clear picture of the, uh, the loyalty of politicians that I don't know what is. Yes. That's kind of uh, my opening statement, if you will. Um, yeah. So, so I would, I would, yeah. I, I, first of all, I think that's a, a great um, short synopsis. And um, some of the things that you bring up, you know, definitely uh, rings true with me. So, you know, one of the things that I think about when um, 
when I think about the, the COVID-19 phenomenon, um, you know, at, at the beginning, when we first started finding out that it, it had gotten to the United States and what it was doing in these other countries, you know, we're talking along the time of, of uh, March, I think March the uh, 14th, like yeah. 14, 15, 16, 17, somewhere along in there during that week was where most everybody here in the United States that shut down it's kind of where that started. I know for us here in Texas, I want to say it was the 17th. It might have been a little earlier, 14th maybe. Anyway, um, at that time, you know, and there were media sources uh, uh, that that definitely caused people to feel this way. And, and I know I was not the only one that had been given the impression. I think we were all to some extent given the impression that this was probably going to be about a two week shutdown at the beginning. You know, that's about what they were saying at the beginning was like two weeks shutdown. And, uh, and so, you know, I noticed that when the shutdown first started, like nationwide, like I didn't hear next to anybody. I mean, there was just only maybe a few outliers anywhere that had any kind of uh, uh, criticism of it. Mm. Uh, they were mostly like really, really radical, just conspiracy nut, like left um, out in left field, just, just wackos. And there was only a very handful of them uh, that had anything to say, um, you know, kind of getting in the way, I guess. I'm having having a hard time characterizing this the way that I, that I see it. But, um, you know, it seemed to me like I actually took a lot of hope. I took a lot of hope in the idea, the fact that so many people just seemed willing to um, just voluntarily take a couple weeks break. And, you know, I looked at that as, Hey, you know, not just nationwide, but like worldwide. Uh, but you know, let's say nationwide for the sake of our conversation and, 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 uh, uh, any debate here, um, nationwide people just kind of understood this as a scientific, uh, kind of problem as a, a medical problem. And it wasn't really politicized just yet. You know, at that point, it had not been very politicized just yet. But basically, the way I see it is that the American people saw a problem. Now, this is not just the American people. This was in countries all around the world. Uh, something very similar played out in a lot of different communities, states, countries. Basically, you know, people understood this as a scientific uh, problem, a medical problem, and not so much as a political problem. There were a few people who were politicizing it a little bit at the beginning, but there's always going to be a little bit of that. But for the most part, I don't think people were looking at COVID-19 as a political problem as much back in January, February, and March, and when the lockdown first began. And I remember when the lockdown first began and, you know, when we call it a lockdown, you know, there is a lot of voluntary uh, action there going on. It's not like the United States had a lockdown, like China had a lockdown. 
Right. That's that's a very different kind of thing. It's it's a very different kind of lockdown by a a very different definition. Uh, So what we did in the United States was mostly a voluntary thing. Now you can say, yeah, there were people who were just, you know, uh, felt embarrassed or ashamed uh, to do something different than everybody else or just don't understand science and medicine, don't understand viruses, don't understand any of that stuff. And so, you know, they didn't want to go against the crowd. Basically, they were just going along with the crowd, going along with the herd, whatever. So whatever you want to say about that, basically, the vast majority of Americans played along voluntarily without really making any um, protest about it. And we were just, you know, there for, and we all, I think we all basically had the impression, the vast majority of us had the impression that it was going to last for about a couple of weeks. And so I think in the back of most people's head, it was like, okay, well, you know, I could take a couple of weeks off work, whatever. This year, maybe I don't get to do the summer vacation, but, you know, we'll do this couple of weeks here and make up for it somewhere along the way, whatever those people who couldn't afford vacations, those people are living paycheck to paycheck. You know, I think even a lot of of those people are like, hey, this is gonna hurt, but I understand that this is only gonna be a couple weeks and we can do this. And, you know, and then I think there are even other people that were, you know, they understood that, hey, this is gonna suck, but like I have friends, I have family, you know, I've gone a couple weeks without a job before, uh, and I've learned how to make it, you know, maybe I have to survive on beans and rice for a month or something, but whatever, you know, like we can, we can go a couple of months and we can figure this out. And so I remember actually telling one of my friends when we were about a week or so into it, I said, man, I have to admit that my faith in humanity has actually been boosted in a way that it hasn't been in years. Because what I see right now is people basically voluntarily going along with something that, you know, could potentially, I mean, in a way it could be seen as like the most tyrannical thing that's ever happened in the history of the world to just shut everything and everybody down and say, everybody lock yourselves inside and don't do anything and wait on us, you know, to tell you that it's all over with. Yeah. And, you know, that's not the way it went down. It basically was more um, people decided to come together. And so, and then of course you've got all this media stuff about, Hey, we're all in this together and, you know, we can all get through this together and, Let's get all of our famous musicians to, you know, do uh, little nostalgic recordings on their, on their um, acoustic guitar at home in their living room and all cry on the internet and shit. You know, let's do all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I was actually um, kind of encouraged with the, uh, with the reaction to it at first. But obviously, we know that things changed really fast after that. Yeah. So I think there are a few bullet points that I wanted to sort of address that I can remember 
thinking about during the beginning weeks of the whole shutdown stuff. Um, the first one was um, homeschooling. So my nieces and nephews back in Tennessee went from going to school to now staying home and Grammy and Pop Pop have to start learning how to teach, right? And um, I think that, uh, so you're, but for most people, your funding for public education comes out of your property taxes. Um, so what do you do when, what does the government do with your property taxes when they can't provide the service that they need? Um, they're just going to keep it and use it for something else. But um, I was I was hopeful that people would look at that as an opportunity to think about education in a different way. Um, I'm a huge advocate for homeschooling and I don't see the public education system as anything more than a form of forced indoctrination um, that you don't, have an, you don't have an option to opt out of as far as funding. And uh, I mean, even if you're send your kid to private school or if you still or if you homeschool already you still are going to pay for public education because uh taxation um so i was kind of hopeful that people would look at that opportunity as a way to rethink the way they live their lives and um teach their children because if you can control if you have more control of your child's education then I think you have more ability to um, influence who they are as who they are and who they will become uh, as humans later on. Whereas if you're if you're just dumping them at school and letting the government do it, um, you're going to get the result that you pretty much see everywhere in the country. You have people with mediocre intelligence doing mediocre work at mediocre jobs, making mediocre income, and the people that exceed or excel. Uh, are far and few between. So that's kind of one of the things that I was, um, that I took away from that whole situation. So the, th the second thing that I wanted to mention or address was that from the very beginning, everyone, every government official, um, every they made the distinguishing fact. They made the distinguishing um, identity between essential and non-essential businesses, and the essential businesses were the ones that provided your groceries and you know your milk and your butter and that kind of, and your gasoline that kind of stuff. Your non-essential businesses were your Macy's and your J.C. and your whatever else. Um, effectively, picking winners and losers in different markets. Um, but a more, on a more practical level, uh, the fact that the most underpaid, underappreciated workers in the country were now the only ones that were keeping things moving. 
your truckers, your uh, cashiers, your Amazon employees, good Lord. Um, everyone who works in that sort of seven to $15 an hour range at grocery stores and all the other deemed essential businesses, if they had just decided to get together and just say, we're not risking our lives for this, everyone would have been screwed. You know what I mean? Um, So I guess there's a, an argument to be made about minimum wage and what people deserve to be paid. Um, But I just think that that, that there needs to be some advocacy. I mean, it's kind of lost to the, to the winds now because nobody's really talking about COVID anymore. They're all talking about Black Lives Matter and the, the, the zeitgeist has moved, moved on from COVID, I think, aside from shaming people for not wearing masks still, but everything else has pretty much moved on. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's going to be a return to normalcy for, for uh, some people, including those low-paid workers who are never going to get you know, now, you know, during that time, there was an appreciation for them, at least like a thank you for your service type appreciation that is normally reserved for military that they got a little taste of. But now the narrative has moved forward. Yeah. And those people are never going to get any more gratitude, any more thank yous, uh, anything from anybody. Uh, and they're going to continue to make that minimal amount of income but they were the ones who i think if you were to call anyone a hero during the whole pandemic thing it would be them and yet if they would have just said this is like because then the thought process was we're risking our lives to be out here and work with you guys they put up the plastic shields in front of their cash registers and you know, they you know, they wore masks and they implemented social distancing policies and Whole Foods and Walmart and wherever else. But um, if they had just banded together and said, this is still not enough, uh, we're not getting paid enough to do this. Um, and unless we get paid more, we demand more respect. You know what I mean? And now, you know, they're never gonna get that. They're never gonna see that again unless another thing happens like that where where the everything is shut down except for those those essential businesses again um but it's just a a unique situation to point out and um i think there should be some advocacy to revamp minimum wage laws or to get rid of minimum, minimum wage laws to allow people to negotiate for themselves their own value instead of having government to say come in and say this is what your value is um because maybe those jobs don't require a lot of skill. Um, but they do, I mean, it's just as hard a job as anything else that anyone else is doing, maybe even more so. Because I know a lot of people that make six-figure salaries that don't do jack shit all day. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to, that was one. So there's, I guess, two of the things that um, I wanted to just sort of bring up and put in people's minds that they probably have already forgotten about. Um, because the narrative of 
of society has moved on from COVID and appreciation for people as now we're in a, a different situation than we were a couple weeks ago. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or. Well, so w when I, when I hear you talk about that, what, what I hear is backlash, um, the, the coming backlash, you know, what, what, what you're talking about right now, um, and you're talking about it in terms of, you know, the certain non-essential versus essential services. You're talking about minimum wage and living wage. And yeah. um, you're talking about, you know, danger pay or, or let's say hazard pay or something, uh, you know, kind of ideas about uh, what happens in a, in an emergency command and control economy and those kinds of things. Those are all issues that people are talking about and have been talking about through this COVID thing. And I think we'll continue to talk about for many years to come in relation to this event. Um, how all that's going to play out is kind of anybody's guess. Um, but in general, I guess what I'm saying is from what I'm hearing from you is exactly what I expect to hear from a whole lot of people from all different political stripes, you know, because you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, that we went to this uh, picking winners and losers thing real quick. And there were some really big lines drawn between who are winners and losers and whatnot in this COVID economy. And I mean, that's just rife with all kinds of uh, uh, potential for um, divisions between people and disagreements about how money should be handed out and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so I guess speaking of money being handed out, those of us, or not those, of, yeah, those of us who were unemployed uh, during this time and, uh, we're left without an income, without a way to pay rent, without a way to pay bills, without a way to pay for groceries and electricity and all the sort of essential things that um, people tend to rely on to live uh, mediocre or comfortable, not even comfortable, just sort of content lives. Uh, and you're given a $1,200 stimulus check and said, here you go, here's four months worth of something to make do with. Granted, yeah. a lot of companies were saying we're waiving fees and we're waiting like your student, you know, the student loan uh, payments were postponed for six months or whatever. Um, and a lot of like credit card companies and stuff were like, okay, if you can't make your payment or whatever, just let us know and we'll defer your payment until such time as all this is resolved to a point where you can go back to work. But um, nevertheless, while you're left with a measly $1,200 to get by on four months, <laughs> um, yeah. corporations were left with billions upon billions of dollars in income uh, to uh, supplement their supposed loss of income due to COVID. But um, I don't know, I'm kind of of the opinion that if you're a large corporation like an airline or a Walmart or a car company or any other, or a bank or some other large entity, you probably have some sort of emergency savings 
um, set aside to deal with disasters or you have insurance or something that can supplement your um, your business while um, while a crisis is going on. But uh, nevertheless, a $2 trillion stimulus package was made out and about $1.5 trillion of that was used for uh, <laughs> big business. Right. I think it's kind of what you want to talk about, right? Yeah, I mean, if if there's if there's not any other of the particulars that you want to get into first, um, yeah, I kind of have a um, kind of have a breakdown here to show. Okay. So, basically, I think first of all, I want us to back up and let's talk about economics. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's back it up and bring it back down to, uh, to the fundamentals, to the elementary of economics. So first and foremost, um, we know that economics comes down to people looking for the goods and services that they need and want. Right. That's what it all boils down to. Uh, you as a living human organism, um, you have a uh, you, you have an innate um, desire to preserve yourself. It's it's uh, it's it's something that's inherent to you as a as a person, uh, as a living creature. Uh, it's called self preservation, and everybody has that instinct. That, that human, that living organism instinct of self-preservation. So basically the idea is that as you, uh, as a living, breathing human um, who is interested in your own self-preservation, that you're going to look for ways to acquire the goods and services that you need to keep yourself alive, to uh, perpetuate yourself, uh, your own comfort, your your, uh, your living conditions, and so on and so forth. And so this is where we get to the point of uh, the idea of supply and demand. The idea being that if one person uh, goes out and catches a bunch of wild chickens and they put them in a pen and they start to raise chickens and and, uh, and collect the eggs. So they have eggs to eat and sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes maybe kill a chicken. So they've got a, a chicken to eat. And another person over here decides that they're going to spend their time, their uh, labor, gathering seeds and planting those seeds and um, maintaining those seeds and those plants that grow into vegetables and they're going to live off of those vegetables. They're going to eat those vegetables to survive. Well, at some point, the guy with the eggs and the chickens and the guy with the vegetables look at each other and say, hey, you know, I've got all these eggs and I would love to have some vegetables to go with my eggs. And the guy with the vegetables says, oh, I'm eating my vegetables and I love those, but I would sure love to have some eggs to go with my vegetables. And so the guy with the eggs and the guy with the vegetables decide to do a trade. They do a barter. So now one of them is a specialist in raising chickens and eggs. And the other one's a specialist in farming, raising vegetables. But they're both eating 
eggs and vegetables because they're making a voluntary trade of their property with each other in a mutually beneficial situation. Right. All right. Now this is not to talk down to anybody. This is just, let's start from the beginning. You know, let's start where, where, where things start at the beginning. So this is, this is how people come about the idea or come about uh, securing the things that they need and want to make their lives better, to perpetuate their health and, and their, uh, and whatever they need. And so over time, economies are built on people who specialize in all kinds of different things. And then they trade all those different goods and services with each other. So now I decide, hey, I want to trade some of my eggs and somebody's going to give me a shoe shine for that. Somebody's going to give me a shoe shine or I'm going to give somebody a shoe shine in uh, exchange for, um, for ink pens that I need to keep my books, my administrative, uh, you know, books for my business. Mm-hmm. And, and so we go, we go on and on and on. We all know there's no end to it. There's no end to the intricacies and the dynamics of economy. Mm-hmm. It's the dynamics of economy. So one of the things that we have to understand to, to really understand economics and especially monetary policy in the modern age is what pe- people call what, what, what's called, uh, uh, um, uh, like paper money, all right? This, this is a means by which uh, it's, it's just a medium of exchange. That's what it's called as a medium of exchange. So the idea is that I have something that I do or something that I make to earn money, but I need all different types of resources from all different types of people who run all different types of businesses. So if my specialty is that I raise chickens and I have eggs and that's how I uh, eggs are what I trade to everybody else in order to get the things that I need and want. Uh, Sometimes it's difficult for me to walk into a Walmart and say, Hey, I need to buy a pillow, some toothpaste, uh, some eggplants, three t-shirts, a belt and a can of motor oil. And I've got all these eggs to trade for it. Right. All right. Obviously that's not going to work. So that's how mediums of exchange came about. That's how we get paper money. Because if you, if you have paper money, now you have the ability, if you have some medium of exchange, you have the ability to say, okay, look, uh, a can of motor oil is worth about the same as a dozen eggs, let's say. Hmm. All right. But we're going to we're instead of trading eggs and oil with each other, we're both going to carry paper money in our pockets and we're going to have values on that paper money that are assigned to the products and to the services that we sell. So that's how we get the paper money. Now, there's a there's a reason there's an important reason to understand how this works, why this works the way it does. Because we have to ask when we want the government to provide something, government has to come up with money from somewhere. It doesn't just magically appear out of thin air. 
So where does government get its money? Well, government has three ways to make money. It can either borrow money, which governments do borrow money, or it can steal money, which is why those of us who are libertarians are apt to say taxation is theft. Right. How can it be anything else? All right. If we let's let's say let's talk about slavery for a second. If slavery is holding somebody for their labor in order to keep 100% of the products of their labor, that makes them a slave, right? Now, let's say we only keep 90% of that slave's income and we let them we allow them to keep 10% of the fruits of their own labor. Are they still a slave? What if we allow them to keep 80% of the fruits of their own labor? Are they still a slave or are they free? What about 50%? What if you keep 50% of everything that you earn, everything that you work for and make and earn, and you give the other 50% or actually the other 50% is taken from you by people in suits claiming to be a legitimate uh, authority of some sort, a government, let's say, or any other kind of security racket mafia, all right, the corporate mafia. Mm -hmm. At what point, at what point, at what percentage of your income, when people are taking it from you, are you no longer a slave? 90%, 80%, 50%, 25%, what is it? All right. So that's one way to look at this. That's why we say taxation is theft. Right. So gov again, governments have three ways to raise money. They can either borrow money, they can steal money, or the third way, and the way that they really love to do it because they get away with it so easy because it's, it's such an easy trick to pull that so many people don't catch on to is they can make money out of thin air. Right. They can print money. Right. They print it. They just make it, make it up. Right? So what's happened is in the United States right now in 1913, yep. see before, before this, we didn't even have an income tax. Americans right. didn't have an income tax. Right. So in 1913, we developed this, this thing called the Federal Reserve Bank, yep. which, you know, those of us that love to rail against the Fed, we love to say that the Federal Reserve Bank is not federal, it has no reserves, and it's not actually a bank. <laughs> yeah. All right. But in 1913, we passed an amendment, and we created the Federal Reserve Bank and the Internal Revenue Service and started an income tax. So at least since 1913, we have not had anything like a free market. All right. Now let's, let's back up again and let's talk for just a second about what's the difference between a free market and a command and control economy. Wait, before you do that, before yeah. you do that, I want to go back to what you said about 1913. If, I'm, if I remember correctly, the creation of the Federal Reserve also took us off of the gold standard am i right about that because okay it, well yes and no yes and no 
Um, we were still, man, see, this is another thing. Is where these, <laughs> these terms are so nuanced and, and some of these terms are so loaded. In a sense, we were still on a gold standard of sorts. Now, that later, that changed over time. There were a couple of things that changed over time. I think the biggest one, the biggest change since then was probably the Nixon thing when Nixon completely uh, uh, unhinged the, the dollar from the gold standard. Right. It's like 1970-something or another, I believe, or 1960-something. I forget the year. Somebody, again, the good thing about podcasts nowadays, people can, can fact check us and look this stuff up for themselves. And, and do that, especially on this monetary policy stuff. You absolutely need to look this stuff up for yourself. All right. So since 1913, we've been operating in something that is not a free market. It is not uh, a free enterprise as, as, as free market libertarians construct it. There's a difference between something called Keynesian economics and Austrian economics. Yep. These are different schools of thought. Now, I like to say that I came around to the Austrian school of economics by way of Chicago. I went through Chicago to get to Austria. Now, this is, this, is not really, this is not really about, you know, locations, geographical locations and the economies in those locations. So there's something that was called the Chicago School of Economics and probably one of the most famous Chicago school uh, and was definitely one of my favorite for a long time was Milton Friedman. Right. Milton Friedman wrote a lot of really great stuff about free market economy. But even Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of, of Economics tend to, uh, to, um, to allow for uh, an awful lot of safety net um, type of programs and social programs and such and for uh, command and control economy, centrally planned economies. Right. So there's this difference between John Maynard Keynes, Keynesian economics, which basically is a school of economic thought that presupposes that economies are to be uh, centrally planned and controlled uh, by a central authority. Right. And, and therefore, like with the Federal Reserve System that we have today, they do things like manipulations, uh, to control interest rates and even to try to manipulate uh, employment throughout the broader economy. Right. So they're, they're by definition, they're command and control economists. They, they're authoritarians. They believe in central, centrally planned economies and basically don't look at the economy as something uh, uh, where individuals can figure out how to um, provide for the needs and services that they need and want uh, for themselves the most and make the best decisions for their own lives. Now, we juxtapose this with Austrian economics. And the Austrian school of economics is a very different kind of animal. Whereas Keynesian economics looks at a centrally planned economy and tries to figure out how do we tweak this 
button or this lever over here in the economy so as to affect all these other things over here in positive ways that we want to affect them. And what the Austrian school would tend to say is that you're, when you do the Keynesian thing, you're, you're making um, uh, interventions into the economy that are going to have consequences that you're, you're not thinking about. It's the unintended consequences of uh, hubris, of people who think that they're smart enough to know how to control and command something as big as, and dynamic as an economy where billions of people are figuring out the best way to get the best goods and services at the cheapest prices for themselves, for their own ideas of, of happiness and, and, you know, what they want to do with their lives. Right. So what we've done in the United States, we've actually, this is the third time that we've had a big central bank like this, and we killed the bank before. In fact, one of our uh, populist presidents in the past, a man by the name of Andrew Jackson, ran on a presidential political platform of kill the bank. And he won, and he did kill the bank. So since 1913, the United States has had another one of these things, and we really need to kill the bank again, end the Fed, just like Ron Paul says, end the Fed. Right. All right. What the, what the Federal Reserve does is it prints that money that the government needs when it can't talk the people into letting it borrow money, when it can't find borrow, uh, people to borrow money from, and when the, the, the uh, tax cattle resist any further taxes. The only thing left to it then is to print money and to use that money interject that money into the economy to pay for the things that government wants to do. Uh -huh. Now, what's the problem with this? The problem with this is that if you've got a hundred dollars, let's say that your economy consists of 10 people, each having $10. So there's a total of $100 in your economy, equally distributed $10 amongst these 10 people each. All right. Now, these 10 people decide that they're going to trade these dollars with each other for things that they need on, let's say, on their de deserted island, their, their, their little economy of a 10 person deserted island. You know, and one person's got coconuts and an, another person's got flint to make fire. And another person's got a bunch of uh, uh, tree branches and, and knows how to, to build a, a good hut. Mm -hmm. Another person knows how to build beds and furniture and stuff like that. And so people use these, uh, use this means of exchange, these dollars that they, this $10 that they each have, and they exchange those for the different goods and services that they need with the nine other people on their island. Now, all of a sudden, one of these people decides that he has the power or he comes up with the ability to duplicate this money on his own and create as many of these dollar bills as he wants for himself. So basically you get one of the guys 
on this desert island of 10 people with $10 a piece, total of $100, you get one guy that understands that if he can duplicate these dollars and he can make as many of them as he wants for himself, then he can flood the market with his own dollars. Everybody else has become basically worthless because now he has so many dollars, he can buy whatever he wants, all right? He, he, he creates $1,000 for himself. Right. Nobody else on the island has more than 10 bucks. So now he comes to every person on the island and he says, look, I'm going to give you 50 bucks for everything you've got now. And he can buy out everybody else on the island because he's the guy with the power to create the money that everybody uses as a median of exchange for the goods and services that they want to trade with each other. Right. That's, that's where the trick comes in. That's where the trick of it all comes in. Now, if the people who are using that means of, uh, that, uh, uh, means of trade, um, they, and, and it keeps getting inflated, they don't always catch on to the fact that for some reason their money becomes less and less valuable all the time. So you go to work and you work for $10, $15 an hour, whatever, you scrounge and you do everything that you can to live as modestly and, and responsibly as you possibly can and still try to scrounge away just a few dollars for your savings account. Right. The problem is the government then interjects so much more money into the economy that's not backed by anything, that doesn't have anything valuable behind it. It's just liquid as it's it's just liquidity. It's just money. It's just paper. And they interject that into the economy, thereby devaluing all of the money that's already in the economy. Right. So if you inflation. Have, it's inflation. Exactly. Right. That's where I'm going. It's called inflation. Now, here's the problem. When we talk about things like old Nazi Germany and the Weimar uh, Republic and the fall of the Republic, how that happened. What happens when these republics fall because of their, uh, their monetary supply and hyperinflation, it's that the government is trying to prop up its own spending to the point it's gotten so irresponsible in its spending that it's having to print so much money to keep up with its promises. It's having to print that money so fast that the market can't even keep up with the inflation in the money supply to, for it to trickle down to other people and still be as valuable as it was before it trickled down to the next person. Right it's going to continue to be devalued. So you can put a hundred dollars of savings in the bank today and 10 years from now, that hundred dollars, you can leave it sit in the bank and not touch it in that savings account. And 10 years from now, that hundred dollars is not going to be as valuable that day as it was the 10 years before on the day that you put it in the bank, because right. now there are so many more, other dollars also in the economy. All right. Now, what has happened is the United States government 
that created the Federal Reserve System has has decided to inflate money to the point that now we have such high interest rates, we're getting to the point that uh, very soon it could be impossible for us to even service the interest on the debt that we owe that we can't pay back because that debt is already higher than we'll ever be able to pay back in our lifetime. Now, let me do, let me see if I can do something here on this screen for you. Let me see if I can do that. I don't know if people are going to be able to see this or not. All right. You might be able to zoom in on it or whatever. Oh, that's so the debt right clock. Here, yeah. This is, this is the national debt clock. This is in real time. Uh, this is us, uh, usdebtclock.org. You can look this up for yourself. Now there's a category over here called us federal tax revenue. Now what that means is that's the amount of money that the federal government is collecting from the American people by way of taxation. And that right now, as we're sitting here looking at this on the 20th of June, or uh, yeah, the 20th of June, the year 2020, the US federal tax revenue for this year is 3 trillion, 327 billion, 766 million and over $200,000. All right. Now let's go over here to this other category is called U.S. federal spending. And the U.S. federal spending for the year is six trillion two hundred and forty five billion four hundred and forty eight million and over two hundred thousand. What that leaves us with is a U.S. federal budget deficit. Now, some people are going to say, hey, if we only took in just over three trillion dollars, then how can we spend over six trillion? That doesn't make any sense. That leaves us with about a three trillion dollar deficit. Yes. <laughs> now you understand economics. U.S. Now, the, the category here, U.S. federal budget deficit. Two trillion nine hundred and seventeen billion. You can just almost go ahead and round that up within the next few weeks. It will get there. It'll mm -hmm. be at three trillion dollar deficit of spending for the year. In other words, twice the amount that we take in is how much they're going to end up spending for the year. Now, let me look at this real quick. The CARES Act. Mm, here we go. The CARES, the CARES Act was $1.8 trillion. 2009 federal revenue was $3.5 trillion. 2000, or 2019, the federal revenue was $3.5 trillion. Federal spending in 2019 was $4.4 trillion. So before the COVID thing even happened, we spent almost a trillion dollars a year more than we collected. That's a budget deficit of almost a trillion dollars. That's not sustainable. Somewhere along the line, the bill has to come due. Now the CARES Act is $1.8 trillion. In other words, it's about half of 2019's federal revenue 
and it stands uh, in about half of all federal spending. Now look at, I got one more thing. Let me see if I can find this other thing that I had, I had looked up here. One other thing that I had looked up here. There it is. This is on, this came across Fox News on May the 22nd. This is on Fox News, foxbusiness.com, May 22nd. U.S. billionaires got $434 billion rich, richer since the coronavirus pandemic began. Now, I saw another one. Where was it? I saw another one somewhere. Let's see if this one's still in here. I don't know. I don't know if I can find this other one right off the top of my head, but uh, uh, right off, right off here. But basically, it listed a couple of the wealthiest people in the United States, a couple of the wealthiest pe people in the world, that have actually increased their fortunes by billions of dollars since the COVID nineteen response. Right. So now, here's what I'm getting to here. Here's, here's that, let me tie all this up and uh, with what we, what we have now, what, wh how, this, how this all applies to right now. Go back to, let's go back for a second to the year 2008. And we have the bank bailouts in 2008. Hank Paulson, Henry Paulson, sounds the alarm and says, hey, he says, look, we've, we've inflated the, pri the prices in housing, and now we have this housing bubble in the market that's about to burst. And if we don't immediately inject billions and billions of worthless liquidity, worthless dollars that are not backed by gold or anything else, except the power of the US military, which we'll get to in a minute, if we don't back, if we don't in, interject these billions of dollars into the economy, then the banks are going to fail, and there's going to have, and there's going to be an economic collapse. Now, what we learned in that crisis, as people like me who believe in the Austrian theory and not the Keynesian theory of economics that the market is not something to be command and controlled and centrally planned, but it's basically the study of economics is the study of how people find the goods and services that they need and want for their lives on a voluntary basis. Right. All right. They interjected, they decided they were going to interject this money into the economy, which is not a free market. All right. This is why I, as a true free market, uh, a true free market, free enterprise person, and we talked about this word capitalism before. Yeah. Capitalism, capitalism is such a loaded term. Capitalism means too many different things to too many different people. All right, you've got the dictionary definition of capitalism. You've got the historic, uh, 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 what's actually happened throughout history and capitalism and capitalistic systems. And then you've got all these different political ideologies that like to define capitalism in their own way. You put a hundred people in a room and say the word capitalism and in a hundred different heads, or in a hundred heads, there's a different idea of what capitalism is. It's a loaded term, it's difficult to use. 
by some, some by some definitions of the term, I am a capitalist. I'm I'm happy to identify myself in the vein of Murray Rothbard uh, as a as an anarcho-capitalist. Okay, but if you were to look at it by some other definitions of capitalism, you might even call me an anti-capitalist. Right. Because there's a difference between capitalism and corporatism. And what we've done in the United States is we've replaced free market enterprise, true capitalism, free market capitalism. We've replaced that with corporatism that privatizes profits and socializes losses. Right. And so now what we've got in the Federal Reserve is that they have interjected so much liquidity what they call quantitative easing, which is basically a fancy way of them saying we're interjecting paper or now it's not even paper. It's just digits. It's just did because it's all digital money. Now there, right. we're just going to interject digits into the market that are not worth anything, not worth anything. We're just going to interject those digits into the market. Now you can only do that to a certain point because there's no productivity behind it. There's nothing to back it. There's no product behind. There's no value behind it. Nobody, nobody produced anything, made anything of any value, value to attach to all that money that's been created. Right. So they interject this liquidity into the market and it makes it so that if you're a responsible person who lives a modest lifestyle and try to save your money because you're smart, now you're an idiot. Now, you're a fool for trying to save money because that money is going to only decrease in value over time. Right. So they've disincentivized people from raising any money and they've incentivized people to take on as much debt as they possibly can. And at some point the debts do come due. Right. Now let's back up again. Let's go back to 2008. What we learned in 2008 is that the Republicans, for all their rhetoric, for as much as they love to use libertarian economic rhetoric, they are not free market capitalists and they are not about free enterprise. They are protectionists. They're corporatists and a lot of them are even, uh, 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 even tariff, uh, even believe in tariffs and trade wars. All right, so they're not about free markets and they're not about free enterprise. And that's something that we learned in 2008 because we had a president, a Republican president at the time by the name of George W. Bush and a Republican candidate for president at time running in the uh, Republican primaries at the time, John McCain with his vice presidential candidate, Sarah Palin. And all of these people, including Newt Gingrich and all these conservatives that we had uh, believed were fiscal and economic conservatives for all these years came out in favor of the bank bailouts, came out in favor of interjecting this liquidity, uh, these, uh, this quantitative easing into the market, which told us who, those of us who actually believe in free market economy, that they are not free marketeers. They're corporatists. The right. Republicans are corporatists. The, the Democrats are corporatists too. Mm -hmm. For all their talk of social justice and social welfare and everything else, basically when it comes right down to it, they operate as corporatists too. Don't listen to what people tell you. Watch what they actually do. Don't listen to their words. Watch their actions. 
They will prove to you that they're corporatists. So what, and, and George Bush even made a statement. I can't, uh, I can't quote it verbatim at the moment, but it was something very close to the effect of, we have to destroy the free market in order to save the free market. Right, yeah, I remember that. What, what a line of bullshit. What a bunch of propaganda if we ever heard. Now, where have we heard that one before? You remember old FDR back in the day, Franklin Roosevelt, one of the uh, uh, justifications that he gave for the New Deal was he said, these, these capitalists have to understand in order for me to save capitalism, I've got to destroy it. Right, yeah. You know, I, I didn't buy, I don't buy it that, that Roosevelt had to do it back then. And I didn't buy it when Bush said that he had to do it in 2008 or any of the other people who called themselves conservatives or Republicans who went along with that bullshit. Now, we had a backlash because basically what our government, our federal government told us when they did that in 2008, they had the bank bailouts, they had this phrase that they started putting out there, too big to fail. Yeah. They said the banks are too big to fail. We can't allow them to fail. We, we've got to bail them out. So what our government basically told us was that we believe that there is an economic institution among us that is so big and so important that it's more important than the free market. It's more important than letting businesses fail. It's more important than letting the natural progression of failing behind a risk that should not have been taken, we're not gonna let that happen. We're gonna intervene, we're gonna centrally plan, we're gonna command and control. That's what they decided to do. Yep. And now when they did that, there was a backlash to that that came both from the political right as well as the political left. After 2008, what do we have? Almost immediately, we have the Tea Party backlash. Right. Who was that guy? What was that guy's name that was on the floor of the stock exchange that started with that rant? You do you remember his name? I, I, Cent, uh, I don't. Cent, Centelli or no? Who was that? I anyway. I'll look it up while you're talking. Okay. So, but there was and of course there was Ron Paul and there were all these other people that that started this Tea Party backlash against the the bank bailouts. Now, the Tea Party got loud, it was big, they had a lot of demonstrations, and for the next couple of years, I mean, they were a big deal. Sarah Palin basically became a kingmaker in Republican politics, and, uh, and we ended up with a whole slew of new representatives and senators, and even uh, in, in Congress, and even in local state governments, a lot of new people in their chambers as well that came out of the Tea Party movement. Now, almost immediately on the heels of the Tea Party movement, which was a right-wing backlash to Wall Street, K Street, and, uh, and the federal government's bank bailouts, we got a left-wing backlash called Occupy Wall Street. Right. Now, Occupy Wall Street took over... Uh, areas, land uh, around 
Wall Street and K Street actually in New York and other places around the country. Now, I remember, I was living in Tennessee at the time, and mm -hmm. I actually went up there to Legislative Plaza in Nashville and sat and listened for a while and, uh, and went up there several days and just talked and listened to other people that were talking about uh, uh, their their grievances with the bank bailouts and with the, the monetary system the way that it was. Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street also resulted in us having new members that came out of that movement that ended up in Congress and other, you know, other politically elected offices. Right. The politics that we have today that divides the left and the right economically and in every other way today still in 2020 cannot be divorced from the 2008 bank bailouts. It changed the game. In 2008, we changed the game in fundamental ways, just like we did in, 2000, in uh, 1913. Mm -hmm. Almost as a fundamental change as it was in 1913. Now, let's bring that up to the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic. Regardless of what you think of how we should have handled, financially handled, the COVID-19 pandemic. First of all, I think the lockdowns were probably the wrong way to go. I'm actually impressed with people in general that we voluntarily tried to do something to help ourselves and our neighbors just to be good people because we all, we all, I think we just all wanted to do the right thing. You know, we, we, we felt like we were doing the right thing. We felt like those experts who should know the best, course of action. I think we felt like we were doing the right thing that we were being taught, told, and that's what we did. But over time, we quickly learned that it was probably the wrong thing. Now, just my personal opinion, you know, I'm not grinding an ax here. People, you know, that people have probably have all kinds of better opinions than I do on this. But just in general, my opinion is those people who are actually high risk, you know, people who are like over 60 and infant toddlers, you know, new baby born, new, new newborn babies right. and anybody like with autoimmune disorders and, and any kind of uh, uh, predisposed health conditions that made them at especially high risk for the effects of COVID-19, you know, people at, of a high risk category. I think those are the people that we should have allowed or, and helped to put into a self-quarantine, a voluntary. Now, I'm only three and a half weeks out of a major surgery myself, and we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm still wearing this collar on my neck that I have to wear for six weeks after the surgery. I'm technically, you know, they gave me a COVID-19 test before the surgery because they needed to make sure that I didn't have COVID-19 before I had this surgery on my spine and my neck because while my neck bone is healing, I can't have something like a cough. Right. It's dangerous for me to have a cough right now. Right. So I had before, even before my surgery, I had to go into self-quarantine. And then after my surgery, I have to stay in self-quarantine for six weeks because I can't take a chance on getting COVID-19 or really anything else that could give me a cough. While my, while my neck, uh, my spine, my cervical spine and my neck is healing. 
All right, so people like me, yeah, we have a reason to cover our face with a mask when we go out and to socially distance from other people and, you know, try not to, to interact when we don't have to and, and to try to self-quarantine the best we can because we have a reason for that. But for people who are not high risk, that should totally be your own choice, whether you want to be on lockdown or not, whether you want to work or not, or whatever. So ultimately, what it boils down to is that I think, you know, people are basically good and we're trying to do the, th the, the right thing we, when, when we went into the initial couple weeks of the lockdown to try to flatten the curve, so to speak. But ultimately, what it boils down to is that the only people, at least at this point, the only people who should be in quarantine are those who want to be in quarantine and those who uh, need to be in quarantine for health and medical reasons. Yeah. So we've locked down an economy. One of the worst things about the COVID-19 response, in my mind, the, the government's COVID-19 response, one of the worst things about it is that it's going to, it has already and will for, I believe, many years produce a chilling effect on entrepreneurship. Yeah. Now, I, I already had to shut down my new small business that only got incorporated as a new LLC back in November. It only started its first business, uh, actually, you know, opened for business and began in the first week of January. And then it shut down the mid, in the middle of March for good because of COVID-19. It, it was an upstart entrepreneurial venture that, that COVID-19 shut down and it's not coming back. Now, could I try, as an entrepreneur, could I try to reopen my school again? Yeah, at some point, but I'm gonna tell you already, as long as we live in a COVID-19 world where there's still the possibility of lockdowns and things like that going on, I'm not trying to start a new business. I'm not trying to start a new Muay Thai school. You know, especially something like Muay Thai, where, uh, uh, where so much of what we do leans so heavily on pressure testing. Uh, for those that don't understand the lingo, pressure testing means that basically uh, in Muay Thai, we rely heavily on sparring, uh, on partner drilling and things like that. So it's d very difficult to run uh, a Muay Thai school when you have to do things like socially distance and whatnot. All right, right. so entrepreneurialship has had a big chilling effect on it. And I don't know, you know, there's some of that chilling effect. I don't know if it will ever go away. You know, it, but before the COVID-19 thing, we lived in a world where there might have been people who would say that that kind of a lockdown could never happen. And therefore, you know, they weren't as scared about being an entrepreneur and starting a new business. Now in a world where we know what the government is capable of doing and willing to do, uh, I think that's going to have a chilling effect on people. Yeah. On entrepreneurship. But now let's bring it back to the monetary thing and what's going on right now. The monetary response, the COVID-19 spending response. We know that there were people in DC who potentially, all right, let's, let's give them some presumption of innocence until proven guilty 
to some extent, but we know that there were, there were legislators, there were bureaucrats in DC who were trying to make good on the fact that COVID-19 was about to, to change everything in the country. And they didn't want to be caught with, uh, with uh, uh, stocks and, you know, financially in a bind or whatever. And so they may have done something very evil and, and unjustified there money-wise in their own finances, let alone all the money that the government decided to spend on the American people. Now, get pull up a calculator, Adam. You got a calculator handy? I want you to run these numbers. I do. Hang on. Let's see. Yep, I'm ready. I want you to run these numbers. All right. Let's go back here to this one that I had pulled up, the CARES Act. So the CARES Act is not the only spending that the U.S. government, the federal government has done in the wake of COVID-19. That's not the only spending they've done. But let's just, let's just take the CARES Act for now. Let's just look at the numbers from the CARES Act. Now, this is coming from uh, heritage.org, budget and spending commentary, how big the COVID-19 CARES Act relief bill was. All right, so the CARES Act, so... First of all, put into your calculator 1.8 trillion. So we're looking at 1 trillion 800 billion dollars. All right, everybody that's listening, everybody that's watching right now, get your calculator, run these numbers for yourself because I want you to see something here. I want you to understand what's going on. I want you to understand how your government is financially fucking you right now. My calculator won't go that high. <laughs> all right, all right. I, 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 I did it. I did it earlier on mine and I know that mine will. So let me do it here on mine. All right. So let's start out calculator. Here is 1 trillion, 800 billion. And then there's the millions, the thousands and the hundreds too. Okay. So there we go. Okay. I got it. I got it now. One, 1 trillion, 800 billion dollars. Now, what's the population of the United States right now? Somebody Google it. I already know it, but I want you to, I want you to Google it and tell me what that number is. Oh, what is it, like 320 million or something like that? I think it's 327 million. Yeah. But you can, go, you, you can Google it. You can Google <laughs> it. Go ahead, yeah, uh, go ahead and Google it if you want. Let's just say, go ahead and say three. So what we're going to do is if we take... $1.8 trillion. And we divide that by the number of people in the United States. What number will that give us? That should give us the number for the amount of money that the government just borrowed, or if you want to say printed, mm -hmm. for each man, woman, and child in the United States of America. So let's do that. Let's divide 1.8 billion divided by 327 million people. And that comes out to 5,000 by my calculations. Yep. That comes out to $5,504 and about 58 to 59 cents a piece. That's how much money the government just borrowed in your name. That's how much money that you are on the hook for to pay back as an American taxpayer. Now, how much money, how much money did the government send you as a piece of the CARES Act? 
$1,200. When they were talking about it, there were people in my community that couldn't even agree on how much money they thought the government was about to send them. The thing was so confusing. Right. But let's just say, there you go. $5,504 is how much money the government borrowed in your name. That's your share of the debt that they're mm -hmm. spending on COVID-19 relief. And let's, let's say you received $1,200 of that yourself. So let's say $5,504 minus $1,200 leaves us with $4,304 that the government borrowed in your name that you are, as an individual, share of the national debt. That's how much money they borrowed in your name that you don't get to see that you don't get to use, that you don't get to have. Right. But where did that money go? Where did that money go? Where is it? Yeah. Where is it? No. 400, 434, all the money, all the money that went to the banks, that went to the Fortune 500s, that went to the big multinational corporations, before they even did the CARES Act, before they even came out and did anything on the, the very first response, the very first bill they did when COVID-19 started was they came and they did another bank bailout. Yep. That was the first thing that they did before they even looked at how they're going to help the American people or American businesses. So yep. basically, our monetary system is set up like this. In 2008, the federal government told the American people, banks are too big to fail, and therefore they spent the money to bail out the banks. In 2020, as a response to the COVID-19 thing, they have told us not only are the banks too big to fail, but even if everything and everybody else fails, we're going to bail out the banks. Look at the amount of money that the federal government spent in 2008 on the bank bailouts, yep. and you compare it to the amount of money that the federal government is spending on the COVID-19 response, the vast majority of which we know is just pork spending that's not really actually helping the American people that are hurting. Again, this money's going to the oligarchy, the very small few people at the very top, the most connected, most interested few oligarchs. And we had the responses back in 2008 and 2009 and 10 and 11 that we had from the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street to that bailout, what kind of response, what kind of backlash do you think that we are in store for because of this COVID-19 bailout, because of this monetary fiasco? I don't think that the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street can even hold a light to the kind of backlash that we're about to see from the American people in the wake of this COVID-19 response. It's yeah. about to get ugly. It, it is, just, I mean, pe people are already in the streets and pumped up and pissed off about a lot of different things. Yep. Hey, 
this response to this COVID-19 thing, to the, this kind of spending, and especially the corruption with all the spending, they broke the bank, and we know that they only took care of their corporate crony buddies more than anything and tried to buy out the rest of us, the backlash that's coming right now is going to make your head spin. Yeah. That's, that's my take on my basic general take summary on economics, the American monetary system, and where we are with it right now, and the political fallout that's about to follow, and that's already beginning to follow. From COVID-19 and, and the government's response. We didn't even touch, we didn't even touch on the, uh, the response from other governments, which maybe we'll just save that for another time. I think we would. That's why, I said, I'm, I'm, that's why I said, I'm sorry. I know this, you know, this yeah. episode, like, you know, there's so much we could talk about. Yeah. There's so much, we could start talking about economic principles uh, in general. We could start talking about monetary policy in particular, uh, you know, and, and before I had talked about, you know, as part of this, I wanted to cover the difference between fiscal and monetary policy and all that. We don't even have time for all that. <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't even have time for all that. But just in a nutshell, real quick, let me say, to those of you who still uh, identify as economic conservatives, as fiscal conservatives, let me, let me encourage you to go look up the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy and remind you that fiscal policy is basically a drop in the bucket compared to monetary policy. Right. And when it comes to both fiscal as well as monetary policy, the Republican Party absolutely sucks. They're corporatists, they're protectionists, they are not free marketeers, they are not laissez-faire economists, they are not uh, free enterprise people, they are all about protectionism and trade wars and tariffs and, uh, and, and corporate cronies and privatizing the profits for the big guy while they socialize the losses and, and fuck everybody else uh, and, and make, make the economy, basically that old cliche about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. That's right. exactly what's happened. And the, the danger of it is, before we go, just a, the one quick thing we all un need to understand about the Weimar Republic and any other uh, 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 point in history, uh, example in history where somebody's monetary system collapsed under hyperinflation, it was because of this very kind of thing that's going on in the United States right now. Yeah. Because we start spending, so, the government starts creating so much money that isn't worth anything, trying to prop up an economy that isn't producing anything, that eventually none of the money is worth anything. And so then we've got to go back to some other completely different type of system of how to uh, exchange goods and services with each other. So right. I, I wish we had time to get into what uh, free markets might would actually look like and the principles of free markets and, and how, you know, the, the federal reserve banking system uh, is inherently uh, uh, anathema to free market uh, enterprise and economy, 
And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we just don't have that kind of time right now. But again, these are all libertarian principles that we need to be talking about right now. And we need to be advocating for and we need to be pointing out how the government is getting away from uh, the principles of sound, responsible money and how that's fucking us, how that's hurting us all and how and why that's causing a lot of the political backlash that we see, and it's only going to get worse from here. If, right. if you want to really know uh, about uh, how that works and how that plays out, let me refer you to real economists, not uh, armchair hobbyists like myself. You know, go, go read uh, Ron Paul's book, End the Fed, and go read uh, Ludwig von Mises' book, Human Action. Uh, those, and, and I would even say, I even still like Ayn Rand to a, a large extent, uh, read Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And, and some of these are, uh, about, uh, about economy in a way that, uh, that promotes sound money and keeps us, uh, in some kind of fiscal and monetary sanity. Every time.